Good morning. Good morning. I don't know if that's my fan club or the jurying section. It's one or the other. Maybe a little bit of both. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for all the ways that you bless us. And Father, we're looking forward to next week. Father, we're looking forward with anticipation to the people that you are going to send our way. Father, help us to interact with them in a way that will shine your light. Father, help them to feel your love and your grace and your mercy and your compassion through us. Father, help us to be bold in our desire to invite people who need to know you. And Father, help us to be bold as we step out of our comfort zone and and as we speak to people and as we talk to people that we don't know. Father, help us to have that, that kind of desire to interact with them. Father, we know that this world is in desperate need of you. And Father, help this to be one small step towards taking you and your son into the world that's around us. And Father, we pray this through Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. So this morning, we're going to continue to look at what it means to live out our 2015 Netherwood Park theme. And that theme is, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So we have committed individually and we have committed as a church family to being people who don't just have a knowledge of God's word, but people who actually live out his word. People who are transformed by his word more and more into the image of God's son and our savior, Jesus Christ. And as we move through the book of James, we are letting this letter that was written by Jesus's younger brother, we're letting it be our guide our guide to what it looks like to be transformed into lives that live like Jesus Christ, transformed into servants of Jesus Christ. And we've seen that James is a wonderful guide. He's a wonderful guide because James himself was transformed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was transformed from an embarrassed and unbelieving younger brother into a slave of Jesus Christ and into the spiritual father of the Jerusalem church. And James is a wonderful guide because this letter that he wrote that's full of advice and counsel, this letter that was originally written centuries ago to dispersed and scattered and harassed Christians, is as relevant to us today as it was to them centuries ago. And that's why we're able to read this letter as if it was written directly to us, written directly to us, by our dear, concerned brother, James. And as we have read the letter, we've seen that James is concerned about how we will handle life's inevitable trials. Trials that can lead us to ask questions like, why, God, are you allowing this to happen to me? Or even, why, God, are you doing this to me? And James has reminded us and reassured us that God hasn't deserted us and God has not punished us. What he's doing is he's telling us that there are joys in trials. We can find joy in trials. Joy in knowing that God is always with us in our trials. Joy in knowing that God is eager to give us wisdom, the wisdom that we need to get through our trials. And joy in knowing that he works through our trials to make us more and more like Jesus Christ. And joy in our trials when we consider that This life is temporary. And the trials of this life are temporary. They're going to come to an end and there's a new life. There's a better life awaiting those who endure. 
James is also concerned about how we deal with temptation's mating call. That mating call, which when we answer it, it joins with our own desires and it gives birth to sin. And then sin gives birth to eternal death. And James has reassured us that our holy God never tempts us to do evil. Satan is the tempter. But even Satan doesn't make us sin. We bear personal responsibility to nip temptation in the bud. To not even pick up the phone to answer temptation's mating call. And James encouraged us to endure through trials and temptations by staying connected to God and by staying connected to his people. And also by being willing to bring our sins out of the darkness and into the light so that we can accept God's forgiveness and so that we can accept God's healing. And then we heard James encourage us to be people who are quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And James stressed that just hearing God's word Sunday after Sunday, week after week, month after month, year after year, that's not enough. James told us that we must also, just like he did, we must be transformed by God's word into slaves of Jesus Christ. And we must put those words into action. And today, we'll hear James turn his attention to showing mercy to others. Showing mercy to others. But we need to understand, James isn't turning away from the importance of doing God's word. Instead, he's focusing on a fundamental characteristic of Jesus' servants. Jesus' servants, like their master, are merciful to others. They are people who show mercy. We might say they do mercy. So in the Bible, mercy is an action word. We can define mercy this way. Mercy is compassion, it's love, and it's expressed in action. Mercy is compassion and love expressed in action. See, mercy isn't just a feeling. It isn't just feeling compassion for others. It's actually doing compassionate things for others. Mercy isn't just feeling love for others. It's actually doing loving things for others. Mercy is compassion and love expressed in action. See, what we're talking about is we're talking about the same mercy that God has shown us. We know that our God didn't just feel compassion for us. He acted compassionately on our behalf. Our God didn't just feel love for us. He acted out of his love to save us. He is merciful to us. Jesus said it like this in John 3.16. He said, For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God is merciful. God, out of his compassion, God, out of his love, gave us his Son. He sent us his son. God didn't just feel, he acted for us. And his son, his son Jesus Christ, the one who brought God's mercy to us, also calls us 
to live lives of mercy, of active mercy. You'll remember in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And James reminds us that those aren't just words. They're a call to action. We also remember something else that Jesus said. His mom and his brothers had shown up looking for him, and Jesus responded this way. He said, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it in practice. That's how you become a part of Jesus' family, by putting his words into practice. And so here James follows in his brother's footsteps, and he writes this letter, and he says, putting God's word into action is fundamental. In fact, putting God's word into action is the overriding theme of James's letter. And so as he turns his attention to putting mercy into practice, James chooses to focus on the dangers of showing favoritism and the dangers of discriminating. See, James focuses on the importance of interacting with other people without showing favoritism and without showing prejudice. Listen to what James wrote. James chapter 2 and verse 1. James wrote, My brothers and sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but to the poor man say, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Verse 5, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Verse 9. But if you show favoritism, you sin. And you're convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James is rather adamant, isn't he? He says, don't show favoritism. And he says, if you do show favoritism, you are sinning. You are guilty. So what does James mean by favoritism? What does he mean by discrimination? Well, as James uses the word here, favoritism and discrimination literally means to receive someone according to their face. 
receive someone according to their face. See, favoritism and discrimination are basing our opinion of someone's worth on superficial things. It's making a distinction in favor of someone or against someone else based on their group, based on their class, based on a category to which they belong. We're familiar with a whole series of ism words, I-S-M, ism words. They've been coined to describe particular kinds of favoritism and particular kinds of discrimination. There's racism, there's sexism, there's ageism. And James here focuses on a particular ism. James chooses to focus on classism. Classism. Classism is being prejudiced against or in favor of people who belong to a particular social class. In this case, James is talking about favoring the rich and discriminating against the poor. And James paints a very vivid word picture of two very different appearing people who might just show up at a worship service someday. Today we'd probably call these people visitors or we might call them seekers. So we have the first man who walks through the door and he is literally dripping in gold. He's wearing expensive jewelry. He's wearing expensive clothes. Today he might have a Rolex on his wrist. It's obvious that this man is a somebody. His appearance leaves no doubt that he has high social status and that he has significant wealth. And the tragedy of the story is not only does he look like somebody, he gets treated like he is a somebody. He gets the prime seat. He gets special attention. But he isn't the only visitor that Sunday. Another man shows up at the door and the contrast in appearance couldn't be any more dramatic. For this man isn't just poor, this man is destitute. His clothes aren't just shabby, they're likely the only clothes that he owns. This man is clearly in the eyes of the world a nobody. His appearance leaves no doubt that he has no social status, he has no wealth. And the tragedy of the story is he not only looks like a nobody, he gets treated like he's a nobody. He isn't even offered a seat. He's relegated to a place where no one will really have to pay him any attention at all. We can see exactly what has happened in this case. These men walked through the door of the church And as they walked through the door of the church, nothing changed. They carried their social status with them, their social standing with them, and nothing changed. The man with exalted status standing outside the walls of the church was elevated inside the walls of the church. And the man with lowly standing outside of the church was subordinated within the walls of the church. And James is very quick and very adamant in saying that is wrong. That's sinful. And James reminds us that true faith has no room for the social distinctions of the world. No room for the social distinctions of the world. 
You see, the world's standards are not our God's standards. What the world values is not what our God values. As God said to Samuel, he said this about himself. He said, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at looks at the heart. So James condemns favoritism, and James condemns discrimination. He says you shouldn't favor anyone because of how they look and because they have exalted status in the world. And he also says you shouldn't discriminate against anyone because of how they look and because they have no status in the world. James says instead we should look at other people with God's eyes. We should look at their hearts. You know, it might be easy for us to stand here and listen to what James has to say and lament the fact that he lived at a time way back when, when people had these kind of problems. That he had to write a letter to people who had a problem with favoritism towards the rich and people who had a problem with discriminating against the poor. But we're kidding ourselves if we think we don't have similar issues, if we don't have similar problems ourselves. We, too, are prone to discriminate and favor and judge based on appearance. And fighting that tendency is really difficult. It requires us to fight against two fundamental forces of our human natures. See, the first force that we have to fight against is our natural impulse to favor those who are most like us. And we know that the more that they're like us, the more we tend to favor them. And the more they are dissimilar to us, the more likely we are to discriminate against them. I won't bore you with the details, but psychological study after psychological study has demonstrated that we naturally have more favorable opinions about people who are most like us. Most like us racially. Most like us economically. Most like us generationally. Most like us politically, and so on it goes. And James tells us that those distinctions can't matter to us. They can't matter to us because they don't matter to our God. The Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We also have to fight our penchant to favor those who can profit us the most. Those who can profit us the most. It's also human nature to give special treatment to those we think can help us out. You know, in James's word picture, you can almost hear the wheels turning. You can almost hear the thoughts that the people might be having. Maybe some thoughts like this. Wouldn't it be great if this rich man became part of our fellowship? Just think how much our contribution might increase. Or thoughts like, if this man would become a part of us, just think of the influence we'll have in our community. And on the flip side, I can imagine there were thoughts like this. If this poor man becomes a part of our fellowship, just think how much time, think how much money he might require from us. Or thoughts like, if he becomes a part of us, What will the community think about us? 
And I stand in front of you deeply ashamed to admit that I have had those kind of thoughts. Maybe you have too. So I can't pretend that James isn't writing these words directly to me. I have to hear James saying directly to me, don't show favoritism. Don't discriminate. Doing that is a sin. And I think that we, we as a group, can't pretend that James isn't writing these words directly to us. Today, we should hear James speaking directly to us, saying, don't show favoritism. Don't discriminate. Doing that is a sin. And James doesn't just tell us that we shouldn't act this way. He tells us why we shouldn't act this way. In fact, James offers three reasons why we shouldn't discriminate against the poor and marginalized. And why we shouldn't discriminate in favor of the rich and the influential. And the first two reasons that James gives are kind of in the category of stop and think about it reasons. Look around you kind of reasons. They're reasons that are rooted in reality. James says, look around you. What class of people are likely to be most receptive to God's word? James says, look around you. What class of people are most likely to humbly depend on God? Look around you. What class of people are most likely to be rich in faith? And I think we know the answer to those questions. The poor are more likely to be receptive to God's word. The poor are more likely to humbly depend on their God. The poor are more likely to be rich in their faith. So why, James asked rhetorically, why would we discriminate against the very people most likely to respond to God's call? Why would we do that? James also says, he says, look around you. He says, what class of people are most likely to resist God's word? What class of people are most likely to depend on themselves? What class of people are most likely to be destitute in their faith? I think we also know the answer to those questions. The rich and powerful are most likely to resist God's word. The rich and powerful are most likely to depend on themselves. The rich and powerful are most likely to be destitute, destitute in their faith. So why, James asks again rhetorically, why would we show favoritism to the very people who resist God's call? But James also says, take a look at God's word. Take a look at God's word and you'll see why you shouldn't show favoritism and why you shouldn't discriminate. James says you shouldn't do that because that kind of behavior breaks one of God's most fundamental laws. One of his most fundamental principles. See, when we act this way, we aren't loving our neighbors as ourselves. We aren't treating others the way that we want to be treated. We aren't showing compassion We aren't showing love. 
we aren't extending God's mercy. Remember, James is writing to Christians who have been scattered because of persecution. Persecution primarily at the hands of the rich and powerful. He's writing to people who are being harassed. Harassed primarily by the rich and powerful. He's writing to people who have been discriminated against by primarily the rich and powerful. So he asks these people, he says, why are you treating the poor people the same way you're being treated by the rich and powerful? Why aren't you treating them the way you want to be treated? Why aren't you treating them with love, with compassion, with mercy? See, there is an antidote for favoritism. There's an antidote for discrimination. There's a cure for those things. There was a cure then, and there's a cure now. And the antidote for favoritism and the antidote for discrimination is the same now as it was then. It's compassion. It's love. It's compassion and love expressed in our actions towards others. That's the antidote to favoritism. That's the antidote to discrimination. The cure is showing others mercy. The cure is showing others the same mercy our God has shown us. So not surprisingly, James concludes this section of his letter by telling us that we need to be really careful about how we speak. And we need to be really careful about how we act. He tells us that when we are dealing with the poor and when we are dealing with the rich and when we're dealing with everybody in between those two extremes, that we should speak and we should act like people who understand that our own judgment by God is imminent. Our own judgment by God is near. It's close at hand. James says we should live like people who are on their way to their judgment. And if we live like people who are on their way to their judgment, it will affect how we speak. It will affect how we act. And it will surely affect how we view other people. So what will we do? Well, we will judge others in the same way that we want to be judged. And we will forgive others in the way that we want to be forgiven. And we will extend the same mercy that we want to receive. And we'll begin to see others as God sees them. Not their outward appearance but their hearts. And we will show them love. We'll show them compassion. We'll show them mercy. We'll begin to see other people in the same way that God sees us. And we'll be humbled in the knowledge that God continues to love us. And God continues to be compassionate towards us. And God continues to give us mercy, even knowing everything he knows about us. We will judge as we want to be judged. We will forgive as we want to be forgiven. We'll extend mercy in the same measure we want to receive mercy. And we will view other people through God's eyes. And we're really fortunate. We have an opportunity to put this into practice and put it into practice 
right away. See, next Saturday we are anticipating hosting a large number of people from our community. They'll be here during our open house. And a fair number of them will be here during our worship service next Sunday and during our Bible classes and during our meal that we share together. So next weekend there will be people here dripping in gold. There'll be rich people here. There'll be influential people here. But there will also be people here who are destitute. People with no influence. And there will be people here from every point in between those two extremes. And we will have an opportunity to put mercy into practice. So we intend to invite every one of our guests, every single one of them, the rich, the poor, and in between, to join us in worship next Sunday, to join us for a meal after our assembly. So what I want to do is I want to close by urging all of us to make the commitment to show mercy to every single one of our guests next Sunday. Show mercy to the rich. Show mercy to the poor. Show mercy to all of those who are in between. I'm going to ask all of us to commit to putting James's words into action next weekend, specifically next Sunday. And to do that, I'm going to give us seven additional I will statements, we will statements, for all of us to do next Sunday. So here we go, seven we will statements to put into practice next Sunday. Number one, next Sunday we will show mercy by arriving a little bit earlier. How's that showing mercy? We're going to arrive a little bit earlier, so we'll have a chance to actually greet our guests. So we'll have a chance to help them find their way around, so that we'll have a chance to show them that we're excited to worship our God together, and we're excited that they share that same desire. So we'll show mercy by showing up a little bit earlier next week. Number two, next Sunday we will show mercy by parking a little farther away. How's that showing mercy? Well, it's showing mercy because we're going to leave the parking spaces that are close to the building, we're going to leave those for our guests. And we're going to leave them for our senior members. And we're going to leave them for anyone who has mobility problems. So if you are able-bodied, next Sunday you will show mercy by parking a little farther away. Number three, Next Sunday, we will show mercy by sitting a little closer to the front. How's that showing mercy? Well, we're going to sit a little closer to the front so our guests, who might be uncomfortable, and most of them will be, who might be timid, and most of them will be, those who are uncomfortable or timid about entering an unfamiliar place with unfamiliar people, with unfamiliar traditions... We're going to sit a little closer to the front so they can find a place to sit without feeling like they have to parade all the way to the front of the auditorium to find a seat. We'll show mercy by sitting a little closer to the front. Number four, next Sunday, we will show mercy by sitting a little closer to the middle. I don't mean in the middle section. I mean in the middle part of the row. And how you ask, is that showing mercy? 
Well, what that does is it allows our guests to find a place to sit without having to crawl over strangers. That's uncomfortable for our guests to do. So rather than sitting right on the aisle next Sunday, we will show mercy by sitting closer to the middle of the pew. Number five. Next Sunday, we will show mercy by speaking kindly to someone we don't know. And we will do that so they will feel welcomed. And they will feel honored. And they will feel loved. So next Sunday, we will show mercy by speaking kindly to someone we don't know. And number six. Next Sunday, we will show mercy by bringing a bit more food to the potluck. How is that showing mercy? I guess it's only showing mercy if you're a good cook. But still, it's showing mercy. We're going to show mercy by bringing a little bit more food to the potluck so everyone, our members, our guests, the rich, the poor, and everyone in between can enjoy a good, hearty meal. And finally, number seven. Next Sunday, we will show mercy by intentionally seeking out tables during our meal, tables that contain people that we don't know, people that we're pretty sure are visitors. And we're going to do that so that we can show our love and compassion to those people by making sure that everybody has someone to eat the meal with. They're not stranded alone and wondering why they showed up on a Sunday in this place. We will show mercy. And we will show mercy because we serve the merciful God. We will show mercy because we have been redeemed by our merciful God. And as we commit to showing God's mercy to others, what I want us to do right now is I want us to stand up and I want us to sing a song of praise. A song of praise to our merciful God who has redeemed us. Let's stand and let's sing. Sing, Lord, like a shepherd.